The book of Psalms is a collection of hymns, a collection of more than songs of prayers, and more than a collection of songs and prayers. It is a counseling manual for the heart. Augustine said that the Psalms are a mirror of our hearts. When they lament, we lament. When they rejoice, we rejoice. When they cry out, we cry out. And they teach us how we are to grow in our prayer life and how we are to grow in our communion with the Lord. And I'm going to admit, Psalm 26 is a challenging psalm. It's challenging. I'll explain what I mean, obviously, in just a few moments. But if you're willing and able... Let's stand to read Psalm 26 together. A Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, friends, God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Presbyterian Church weekly podcast. We're glad you joined us. Trinity is a member congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America and the Acts 29 Network. We are located in Owasso, Oklahoma. Follow us at trinityowasso.com. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trinity Owasso. Diagnosis. It's a sobering word. It silences any conversation and it roots you very quickly. Diagnosis. I mean, just this week, some of you texted me about people in your own family who were waiting for a diagnosis. What's wrong? Some of you are waiting still for a diagnosis. I got a text from my own family this week, and my parents said my brother is in his house in Houston, and he's in excruciable pain. He can't get up off the floor. Would you pray for him? We're waiting for the diagnosis. Diagnosis. When my son Andrew was, was little and he, he had some reactions to foods, we took him to the Tulsa Allergy Clinic and, and they began to, to test his arm. You've seen this if you have kids who have had allergies and they poke on their forearms and mm, ow, mm, ow, mm, ow. You know, poke, poke, mm, mm. He rhythmically would say as they poked his arm 30 or 40 times, his forearms looked like little mountain ranges full of redness and 
and swollen. We were trying to figure out what was the source of his reaction, what was the, the diagnosis. Psalm 26 is what you call a diagnostic psalm because it evokes a reaction from you. It creates a tension in your heart when you read it, doesn't it? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Who can pray that? I mean, didn't Pastor Scott just invite us to confess our sins? He just invited us to say that we are obstinate, not obedient. But yet David here is praying, vindicate me. There is a tension that evokes a reaction in Psalm 26. What's the tension? Let's look. David is remarkably bold in this psalm. He is asking God to vindicate him. Look at what your Bibles say. To prove him, to try him, verse 2, to test his heart and his mind. One commentator said, what chutzpah. At first glance, this psalm just seems so arrogant. It seems like David is so unaware of his heart, doesn't it? I mean, listen, listen to verses 1 and 6. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Verse 6, I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord. That's a reference to going around the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could do once a year. And here David talks about it with just such casual observance. How can David say that? I mean, didn't Jesus condemn the Pharisee who prayed just like this in Luke chapter 18? So Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, Luke 18 says, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But this tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in Luke 18 sounds like David in Psalm 26, doesn't he? And the tax collector, on the other hand, shows nothing to commend himself. No integrity, no innocence to speak of. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Psalm 26 is a diagnostic psalm because every one of us read this psalm and we have a reaction to it. What are the reactions? Well, reaction number one, what's the big deal? Like some say, God accepts us all. Some say, why would you even be afraid of drawing near to God in prayer? God accepts us. He loves everybody. 
God is kind and loving and gracious. Don't, have you, haven't you heard of, or don't, haven't you heard yourself perhaps talk of God in this way or know somebody who does? It sounds nice, doesn't it? No, God's just going to love you. Don't be afraid of drawing near to him. But the problem is that David's God is a God of holiness and of judgment. Isaiah 30 verse 27 says, Burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke, his lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. Isaiah 33, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell in the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Vindicate me, O God, for I am innocent. Do you feel it? David said in Psalm 33, in fact, Do not enter into judgment upon your servants, O Lord. For no one is able to be judged and found innocent. Yet David here prays, I want you to judge me, test me. What is going on? Who among us can live with this God who is a consuming fire? Reaction number one is what's the big deal? Reaction number two is I am up for the challenge. Some people will read Psalm 26 and they'll say, yeah, that feels about right. Yeah, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Vindicate me, O God. Let's really pull out the ledger, my good deeds versus my bads. And I think that on balance, my good deeds will outweigh my bad. And people will tend to read Psalm 26 as though David is praying in the same way. David's good deeds, some would say, he believed were able to outweigh his bads. And so God would judge him innocent or right because eventually the scales of balance would fall toward David's integrity. The problem with that is that David himself says that all have turned aside. The Lord looks down, Psalm 14, that we looked at earlier this summer, on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, and they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. David says that everybody has turned aside. Does David think that he is the exception to the rule? Isaiah 33 again says, Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And Isaiah answers, Only the righteous can. Isaiah says, He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions and who shakes the hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts the eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Only righteous people, friends, can safely live in the presence of God's holiness because it is a consuming fire. David's God is not comfortable. David's God is safe only for the righteous. And when we read Psalm 26, it evokes a reaction that, that reveals how do we understand ourselves in the presence of God? Do we say, well, this is not a big deal. God is going to love everybody. and He's going to accept us. 
do we say, I'm ready for the challenge? I mean, you, you remember if you were in our new members class, that those who just joined and others who've come, that Scripture teaches that there are two ways to be up for the challenge, that we say to the Lord, either by being irreligious and running off to be our own God and saying, I make the rules, God. I'm going to live according to my own law-keeping. I'll make my own identity. I'll determine what salvation means. And then there are others who pursue the exact same method of salvation, but they do it by hiding in religion. And they use their religion to keep them away from the consuming fire by trying to be good. And often the irreligious and the religious, they can't stand to be in the same room together because they operate by the exact same principle of salvation. Flannery O'Connor wrote about an evangelist in the Deep South called Hazel Motes in one of her books, Wise Blood. And she said that in Hazel Motes, this self-saving strategist trying to work his way into heaven, she says of him that there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And we all have a little hazel in us. Hazel notes, that is. Because we know that if we're irreligious or if we're religious, we often play the same game. We are trying to say to the Lord, vindicate me, O God, according to my efforts in proving that I'm worthy of your love. But both of those don't relieve the tension of Psalm 26, do they? How could they? David wants the consuming fire of the Lord to draw near to him. And here he is, and he is in God's presence, and he goes around the Lord's altar. And yet, he says, there is none who does good, not even one. How do we read Psalm 26 when it seems to contradict so much? of what we know of Scripture. Well, let me take you on a little tour of the Psalms so far that we've looked at to help you understand what David is doing, how we can cry this with integrity. If you have your Bibles, flip back to Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, it's the keystone psalm of the entire book of Psalms, and the very first word begins to give us the answer. Blessed is the man the one upon whom God has set his blessing. Or in Psalm chapter 4, what is the source of our righteousness? Look in Psalm chapter 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And if you remember when we preached through that psalm, that's the only time in the Old Testament when God is called the God of my righteousness. It is a righteousness, David is saying, that is coming from God to David, or Psalm chapter 6, verse 4, turn and deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your, your steadfast love, your chesed, your loyal, faithful love. Or let's continue on our tour of the Psalms. What does it mean to be righteous in the Psalms? Chapter 15, verses 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart, they will be the ones who can dwell on God's holy hill. Well, how are we to do that? Psalm 24, 
which we looked at last week that Pastor Scott led us through. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, he shall ascend to the hill of the Lord. And he will receive blessing through his good works, through his moral efforts, through him being up for the challenge. No, it says he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. And we could go on and on. We could go to Psalm 26, verse 3. In our text today, we could go to Psalm 32, where he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long as though I was melting in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Or Psalm 71, or Psalm 98, or Psalm 132. Every one of these psalms are showing us that the righteousness with which David understands himself to be righteous is a righteousness that he has received. And reaction number one to this psalm, and i got to be honest, in getting ready to preach it, it's confusing. How can you pray this? Either you just go, God's going to love everybody. It's going to be fine. You read this as a moralist and you say, well, I'm up for the challenge. Let's see if he can weigh my good deeds against my bad and see how I stack up. Or you can see in Psalm 26 that David shows us a third reaction, and that is the secret to true independence. What do I mean by that? Reaction number three is a true independence. David was the king of Israel, which means that his job was to keep the peace with his allies and defend the peace from his enemies. And David was constantly working relationships with his allies and his friends or with his enemies. And his job as the king of Israel was to protect and to defend the peace and the prosperity of his country. And so David is constantly assessing himself relative to these two groups of people, the loyalists or his enemies. And David is saying, vindicate me, O Lord. I do not want to be vindicated by the opinions of my allies, by the opinions of those on Facebook by the opinions of my colleagues, by the opinions of my family, by the opinions of my friends. And I don't want to be vindicated by the opinions of my enemies. I want true independence because I know that my ultimate dependence is completely upon what you think of me, O oh Lord. And so Peter here is declaring his independence from the opinions both of his allies and of his enemies. And he is saying that I am not to be judged by either one. I'm only to be judged by the Lord. Does that make sense? And when we think about the application of the gospel for us, friends, practically speaking, we know that we rest in a righteousness that is not our own. And if you're here today and you've not yet ever believed in Jesus for your righteousness, then lean into it and please pay attention, especially for the next five minutes. We do not claim to have righteousness of our own, even though so many Christians act like they do. That's why we have confession of sin every week. It recalibrates our hearts because we know that the greatest obstacle to our public witness in the world are hypocritical Christians of which I am the foremost. 
But I know that my righteousness is not my own. It has come to me by grace through God's gift of salvation to me that I received by faith. And so I don't say that I'm up for the challenge. I get to say, Jesus completed the challenge for me. He was enough. And so when I read Psalm 26, I can come in line of David and I can say, Lord, vindicate me. Lord, I am not judged by how well the sermon today goes. I'm not judged by how well somebody thinks of me. I'm not judged by how well I perform in this matter. I'm judged solely in relationship to my relationship to your son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross so that we might be able to live freely, truly independent of all that plagues you and wears you out in your search for identity. And identity is such a hot, popular term right now, isn't it? But don't you want to be independent of all of those other labels? Like, don't you want to be completely independent of all of those battles that so many of you are fighting? You can be when you join with David to pray Psalm 26 and say, only Lord, vindicate me. In you only do I seek to be judged. Notice the source of David's dependence. Verse 2, prove me, Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And the Hebrew word for mind is actually kidneys. That's the seat of emotion in the Hebrew worldview. Prove me. Try me. The word try is the image of melting down metal to remove the dross. You melt it thousands of degrees. The metal is heated up in order to have the dross removed and then it's reshaped into a mold. Does anybody here want to volunteer to be melted by a thousand degree heat? Anyone? But that's what the Lord does to us again and again, isn't it? Job was blameless, Job 1, 8. And the Lord tested him. David here says that he was blameless, and yet David knows that he again and again says, Lord, would you try me? Would you prove me? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? Why? Why do we not want to go through trials? Because we, we don't like the pain of being melted. And one of the reasons we don't like the Lord to continue to try us and test us is we can't even begin to imagine the beauty of being pure. But when that dross, that slag is taken off the surface, and when we're reheated again in God's providence by the challenges of our life, He's given us a picture of what purity looks like. Listen, I know it's hard to wait. But can you imagine what it's like to be pure? He's with you. I know it's hard to wait for a diagnosis. I know it's hard to wait for this or that. I know it's hard in the midst of your worrying. But the Lord is taking the dross off of you. He is melting you again and again. David says, test me, try me. Do it again. Do it again. Romans 5, 1 Peter 1, James chapter 1, 2, and 3. It's like saying, Lord, do it again, Lord. Make me pure. Is that the cry of your heart? Like, are you simply a Christian and you trust in justification by faith alone? Great. Yes. But man, you struggle to actually obey what God's Word simply tells us to do. Would you, like David, read and say, Lord, I want to be judged only according 
to your judgments. I want you to test me, and I want you to prove me. Why? Verse 3, because your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk not on my faithfulness. I walk in your faithfulness. David gives his argument. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. For, there's his argument. And then he gives the fruits of believing that God's righteousness is the only source by which he can be judged. I don't sit with men of falsehood. I don't consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. He's not saying that I'm better than these other people. He is saying that when sinners entice me, consent them not, as Proverbs 1.10 says. David is saying, Lord, I want to be pure. I am struggling and trying to live into who you've called me to be because I know my righteousness is only in you. I wash my hands in innocence. These are my commitments. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming, in, uh, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of all your wondrous deeds. These are commitments that David has made in light of the Lord's righteousness. He washes his hands in innocence. He, he, he comes before to confess his sins again and again. Psalm 32, 2 through 5. He confesses his sins. He goes around your altar, O Lord. He comes to the presence of God's people in worship, and he enjoys dwelling in the habitation of his house, as he says uh, later. The habitation of your house is beautiful to me. He proclaims thanksgiving aloud, and he tells of all of his wondrous deeds. David gives thanks to God. He shares his testimony. Do you? Like, do you tell your story of how God is your righteousness to other people? Like, not, it's not yours. He has imputed righteousness to you. You are saved by the non-imputation of your sins and the imputation of Jesus' righteousness. And David here is saying it leads to sharing your story, telling what God has done, which is exactly what so much of the Psalms tell us to do. Psalm 9, 9, verse 1, proclaim the glorious deeds of the Lord. Psalm 73, Psalm 78, Psalm 145, the entire thing are just testimonies of God's faithfulness and goodness to his people. So, what's the diagnosis? When you read Psalm 26, the diagnosis is either going to be I am unworthy in the presence of a consuming fire of a holy God. I can't possibly be innocent. What chutzpah I would have to declare such things. Or if you're in Christ, then your diagnosis is your father looks at you and he says, you're worthy because of Jesus who is the true and better David, who, yes, Jesus prayed the psalm, but of course, so did David. David wrote it long before Jesus was here because David's source of righteousness was an alien righteousness given to him. And today, we don't go around the altar, O Lord. We don't have altars in the church because the sacrifices are finished. We have a table where you're going to hear in a moment, Pastor Scott, invite you into communion with Jesus we don't have a table whereby we have to slaughter animals for the sake of our sins. We look to Christ on the cross who was killed, sacrificed for us, 
once and for all so that now the altar is turned into a table where we come not with fear of judgment, but we come with the warm embrace of a loving Savior who says, yes, come to me, all who are heavy laden, as we sang earlier in the service, and I will give you rest. And so what is your diagnosis? You tell me. Do you react to this psalm and just blow it off? It's not a big deal. God loves everybody. Is your reaction a challenge? Are you mad that David can say he's innocent and you're still working on that? Or do you read this psalm and you see that the righteousness that is given to David is the Lord's righteousness. And David chooses not to be judged by his friends or his enemies, but he is choosing to base his identity solely in the judgment of God, who has given him a righteousness not his own. And we who are in Christ have been given a righteousness through Jesus, not our own, so that we might be able to say, this is a picture of our future. It is not yet ours, but it will one day be. And as you come to the table today, it is a picture of you coming with joy and the Lord burning you again and taking off that dross and saying, I love you. I'm going to melt you down. I'm going to test you. I'm going to try you in my love as I reshape you into my image again. Only God's judgment matters. And the deep, restless hunger for self-saving righteousness will eat the religious and the irreligious from the inside out. Only Christ and his death for us allows us to have true independence and an identity that is securely fixed in heaven, in him. Let us walk in his faithfulness together and let our feet stand on level ground in the great assembly, a reference to the church. And let us bless the Lord. One last thing. The fruit of you resting in your righteousness in Jesus is that you begin to love the church more and more. And you begin to make this church something of what you long for. Use your gifts. Do it. Make this a place where you can say, I come into the great assembly. If you're at home, make this place a place you can come into the great assembly and your foot will stand on level ground because it does not matter in this room. What you've done, we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. And we all have an identity that is given to us by Jesus. And no matter what our differences may be, we find ourselves as brothers and sisters united together to be a countercultural community in the midst of our city for the glory and the fame of his name.